Acts 21, beginning in verse 15. This is God's word. After those days, we took up our carriages and went up to Jerusalem. There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea and brought with them one Mason of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. The day following, Paul went in with us unto James and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it, therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this that we say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. Take them, and purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, and from things strangled, and from fornication." Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entering into the, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until an offering should be offered for every one of them. One of the best-known lines in Scottish literature comes from the pen of the poet Robert Burns, and I, with my lamentable voice, will try to render it in its original form. The best laid schemes of mice and men gang aft glay, and lay us not but grief and pain for promised joy. It's a poem that subverts our expectations because its title is To a Mouse. If you didn't realize that the best laid plans of mice and men often go astray, go off to stray, uh, comes from a poem entitled To a Mouse. Well, I didn't either until I started researching. Uh, for the sermon. And the, the poem is an interesting one because it, is, it has eight stanzas, and six of them, the first six, uh, fool you by its evocations of natural, naturalistic beauty and the struggles of a mouse, its challenges and its interruption of a man. All, the poet even uh, kind of apologizes to the poor mouse for startling it and forcing it out of its nest in his house. But the last two stanzas take a human turn and reflect upon the jarring reality of human sadness contemplating the past and uncertainty in looking to the future. The best laid plans of mice and men oft go awry. Such dour contemplations seem rather apt for us who know the rest of Paul's story. The plan at the heart of the passage here in Acts 21 goes astray. And does that mean that it is a bad plan? Does it reflect a na naivete of the elders? Is it perhaps a plot of the elders to rid themselves of the troublesome apostle to the Gentiles? And all these options and interpretations at one point or another appear in the literature commenting upon this passage. But we face the question, how does Luke understand these events? 
How ought we to understand them? And more importantly, how does the Lord intend us to understand them and to apply them to our lives? Paul finally arrives in Jerusalem, and Luke does not record for us whether he makes it in time uh, for his Pentecost deadline. And the silence probably marginally argues for a positive rather than a negative answer. It's probable that he makes it uh, to Jerusalem according to his deadline. This decision has a slight influence in something uh, we will later look at. As Paul comes to the center of the established church, he meets with a challenge that the elders advise him to address in a demonstrable way. They want him not to respond to the challenge by way of voice or statement, but by way of demonstration. Because against rumor, often the best response is show, don't tell. As we follow the story, I suggest that we look at it in three stages. We see a joyful welcome, a jarring problem, and a judicial solution. A joyful welcome, a jarring problem, and a judicial solution. We begin with Paul's entry into Jerusalem. Here we confront some of the concerning questions regarding his initial acceptance, and yet by the end of these challenges, all these challenges have been overcome, and he is received with joy. We see him coming to Jerusalem, and we see him welcomed in Jerusalem. We pick up the journey narrative as the group departs from Caesarea there in verse 15. And after those days, we took up our carriages and went up to Jerusalem. It's all, always when you read in Scripture, everyone's going up to Jerusalem and coming down from Jerusalem. And that's, uh, there's a spiritual quality to this, but there is also the reality that Jerusalem is on the top of a hill or a mountain. And so you're always going up to Jerusalem and you're always coming down from Jerusalem. With the acceptance of Paul's decision that he must go to Jerusalem, despite all of the warnings that he has received, the team begins their final leg of the journey. But they don't make this trip alone. Look at verse 16. There went up with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea and brought with them one Nason of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. The, there is a textual issue, actually not a textual issue, it's a translational issue because the ESV will ring, bring us, bring us to the house of Nason of Cyprus. So this idea, who is this Nason of Cyprus? Is he a disciple who had come to Caesarea and was returning to his house in Jerusalem, or were the disciples in Caesarea bringing the fellowship to his house in Jerusalem? Was, where was Nason when this uh, verse begins? Is he in Caesarea coming with them to Jerusalem, or is he there in Jerusalem and they're bringing, they're bringing the, the team to Jerusalem? And it's not a textual issue. The text underlying, the Greek text is the exact same. It's a question of translation. And frankly, the underlying Greek uh, could support either reading equally. And frankly, it doesn't dramatically change our understanding one way or another where Mnason is. Instead, we learn two things from this verse. First, we learn that the group traveling to Jerusalem grows from Caesarea. There are more people in this group traveling with Paul that are leaving Caesarea then arrived with him in that city. It supports our idea that Paul has reached Palestine in time for Pentecost as Jews begin coming to Jerusalem. Perhaps this increase of travelers reflects that reality. But secondly, we see that Paul has a place to stay with an established family there in Jerusalem. An established family in, Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem church, this Nason of Cyprus was a, uh, 
Someone who's been in the church for a long time, the text tells us. Some commentators have suggested due to his name that he is a part of the Hellenistic uh, Jewish church, the part of the church that predominantly spoke Greek. We've seen this group of people all the way back in Acts chapter 6 when the, the uh, eruption of questions about uh, their participation in the church causes the establishment of the seven. Might, if he is part of that church, it may explain uh, what he might have been doing in Caesarea. As a Hellenistic Jew, he could go to Caesarea and talk and tr transact business in that uh, predominantly Roman city. Some commentators also suggest that Paul's lodging with Greek-speaking Christians may indicate that there is some friction as he approaches Jerusalem between him and the uh, Hebrew-speaking part of the Jerusalem church. And we'll get into that in a second. Whatever the possible background, Paul receives a warm welcome from the brethren when he reaches Jerusalem. Look at verse 17. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Luke has no indication of the tension that modern commentators subject, su suspect. And uh, there's other reasons why the elders may not have been able to greet him until the following day. Whatever happened behind the scenes, the next day resolves any formal official dissension between Paul and the established church. Look at verse 18. The day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. Notice how Paul does not approach the leadership of the Jew Jewish church alone. We have that phrase, with us. He takes perhaps the entire delegation. He takes Luke and everyone that was, been, was named at the beginning of his departure as he came out of Greece. Luke, uh, beside, behind the scenes, we know, largely ignored by Luke, this delegation from the Gentile churches uh, are there to present a gift to the Jerusalem church. We never hear about this gift, really. You hear uh, bits and pieces of it, and from uh, the book of Corinthians and some instructions to Timothy, we know that this is a big thing for Paul, that they are he's collecting this gift uh, for the, the Jerusalem church. But Luke and Acts never really talks about it all that much. But you cannot ignore the reality that that's one of the reasons why Paul is there, and likely at this meeting, Part of the reason for this meeting is for the Jew Gentile churches to deliver this gift to Jerusalem. James appears here as the head of the elders, as uh, he has taken on this role ever since Acts chapter 15. And the fact that all the elders are here generates some speculation about how many elders there would have been in the Jerusalem church, and some estimates go as high as 70. Paul reports to the assembly of the elders all of his ministry among the Gentiles we, in verse 19. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. The word particularly here is one by one. Paul relates one by one the events of his ministry to the Gentiles. Luke notes that Paul gives credit to the work to the Lord. This was not his uh, he, he did not establish the church. He was not telling his story. He was telling God's story of what God was doing through his church, building his church, that, in which he was using Paul as his minister. Paul has not constituted the church in Asia and Greece. The elders may have, have suspicions about Paul, but they cannot doubt the Lord's establishment of his church. 
And Paul has right there all the witnesses he needs to talk about what God had been doing. He has people there uh, probably from, uh, from Corinth, from Thessalonica, from Berea, from Philippi, from Ephesus, from Troas. Everyone can bear witness to the things that God had been doing in those cities that Paul had labored in. This report brings us to an impressive response. Look at verse 20. When they heard it, they glorified the Lord. The elders recognize the work of God in the ministry of Paul, and they give thanks to the Lord as they hear Paul's report. Isn't it interesting how our attitude can, cha can change when we go from rumor to truth? This throwaway line that I like to use frequently from the movie Cool Hand Luke, what we have here is a failure to communicate. And oftentimes, you know, we, it was, came out of the mouth of a rather uh, disreputable character, but it's, there's a lot of truth in that, that most of the time what we have is a failure of communication. Consider what the elders came into that meeting thinking about Paul and his ministry. And we know what they how they came into the meeting thinking about Paul and his ministry because uh, they tell him the rumor that is going around the Jerusalem church about him. Look at verse 21. We, th they are informed, be being the church is informed, and the elders would be informed, that you teach the Jews, which are among the Gentiles, to forsake Moses. The elders are probably coming into this meeting with Paul with this misapprehension of something that Paul has been saying. And it's likely that they asked Paul about this issue. And he is there, and he not only can deny it, but he's got all of these witnesses around him. He has Luke, he has the people from Corinth, and from Thessalonica, and from Berea, and from Philippi, and from Ephesus, and from everywhere he is taught, who can look at the, the elders when they ask the question, like, do you have, how can you think that? This is absolutely untrue. And they can verify that Paul absolutely doesn't preach that way, and that truth that comes to the elders allows them to transition from sus being suspicious of Paul to being joyous. We often find ourselves suspicious of a good report and credulous of an evil report. As we are Reformed believers in a broken world, our minds are oriented that way. We have a respect for total depravity, and we anticipate, we oftentimes anticipate that the evil we hear people doing is the truth, and the good that we hear people doing is mere rumor. Now, I'm not saying that we ought to be generally credulous, believing of any report we have, but we ought to be discerning and hopeful, especially with those within the church. The Westminster Larger Catechisms says that we ought to exhibit a ready receiving of a good report and an unwillingness to admit of an evil report. Now, this does not mean that we are to believe any good report infallibly, nor that we are to stubbornly refuse to admit an evil report against evidence. It's calling us to reorient our minds and our presumptions. It's telling us our tendency is to admit evil reports too readily and to not listen to good reports. 
The dour Christian cannot rely upon the doctrine of depravity to justify his sourness. The scripture commands God's people to hope, to joy, to love. Let these be the defaults within our minds and our hearts. We see a joyful welcome, but secondly, we see a jarring problem. This cheery feeling may abide among the elders. They may be convinced by what Paul has done and the evidence that is amassed by these witnesses, but the rest of the church is still going to have a difficult time. We look at uh, the character of those who are involved and uh, the substance of their concern. The elders inform Paul that the church has concerns about his ministry. Look at verse 20 again. Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous for the law. The elders identify a faction within the church, and they seem to make it to be the entirety of the Jerusalem church, or at least the Hebrew-speaking Jerusalem church. They describe this group as those who are zealots of the law and credit them with numbers in the thousands. The idea of the law here ought to raise a question. What law are they talking about? Now, in our categorization of the law, often we think of the moral, ceremonial, and civil law of Moses. But here, neither of those categories really fit. Paul is not being, if you look at what Paul is being accused of, it is not something that is against the moral law. It's not really against something that, that is against the civil law. And it's not all that clear whether it's about the ceremonial law. Instead, law here seems connected with the customs of the Jews, especially focusing on circumcision. And nothing in this text appears that suggests that this passion for the law is in any way problematic. The elders seem solicitous of this viewpoint. And so when we think about those who are zealous for the, for the law, these are people who have no confusion between the customs of the Jews and what makes a person right with God. This is, these are not uh, the Judaizers of the Galatian church. These are Jews who, who enjoy the customs of their ethnicity. And when the, what they are hearing is causing them consternation. This is the problem in verse 21. They are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. This rumor has reached Jerusalem concerning Paul. And we cannot but, in the face of such a falsehood, see the hideous fingers of the devil at work. He is poisoning the mind of the church against the apostle. But we can see how this lie would develop. Paul is well known as being the apostle to the Gentiles. He ministers to both Jew and Gentile in foreign lands. He advocates for Gentiles not to receive circumcision as a means of grace. And you can understand how these facts can drift into a lie. Uh, These well-established facts about who Paul is, they can drift into a lie that Paul tells the Jews as well as the Gentiles not to circumcise their children or to follow the customs of Israel. Paul is already telling the Gentiles not to live as Jews. Could he also in those foreign lands in the Gentile world be telling Jews not to live like Jews? That is the report, that is the rumor, and that is the fear of the people. That is their concern. The elders now likely know that 
what a false report this is, but the rest of the church may not be so easily convinced. And Pentecost is likely drawing near. Look at verse 22. What, it, what is it, therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. The AV adds to the credit, the authorized version adds to the credibility uh, to the idea that Paul has arrived before Jerusalem, to Jerusalem prior to Pentecost by including the word it is necessary for the multitude to assemble. Pentecost is coming. It's a day when we, they, the church may be gathering to celebrate the establishment of the church, the pouring down of the Holy Spirit upon uh, the initial believers. And if that is true, the, the, the assembly, there's going to be assembly together and we can't prevent it. And if they, we gather together and you're not there, that's going to be a problem. And if you're there, that's going to be a problem. We've got to deal with this before uh, this assembly, before Pentecost happens. Whether or not you take that, uh, this reconstruction to be true, the elders foresee trouble. People know that Paul is there and trouble will uh, eventuate unless this false report is dealt with. It is important to consider that neither the customs of the Jews nor the customs of the Gentiles require abandonment so long as they don't violate the moral law. Jews may remain Jews, Gentiles may remain Gentiles, Southerners may remain Southerners, and Northerners can remain Northerners. The customs of nationality, ethnicity, regional culture, and their own quirkiness do not separate God's people. Whether you identify yourself as a Cajun, a gearhead, a metalhead, a jock, a nerd, or any of the other various ways we subcategorize ourselves, the whole gamut of stereotypes, both beautiful and common, come together at the cross not to lose their distinctions, nor to assimilate, but to build and to cooperate. This is the heart of the problem. This is probably why Paul agrees to what the plan is so readily because he recognizes how injurious this dissension is. How can such a diverse group live in harmony? Something must matter to us more than our differences. I was thinking this afternoon of an illustration of a building. If you want to build a building, you need so many people with so many different uh, tasks. You need someone to be able to, uh, or an architect to arrange it. You need a builder to build it. You need uh, workmen to work in it. You need uh, the guy, the technician to put all the internet stuff in it these days. All these various people, all these different gifts are necessary to build a building in the church is like this. We need all kinds of differences. But the goal of building the building is what unifies all these various people together. Something must matter more to us in the church than our differences, and that something is only and can only be Jesus. He must matter to us more than our customs and idiosyncrasies, and our love for his people must exceed our love for our customs. While all of our customs are uh, not necessarily to be uh, done away with, not all of our customs or cultural practices are to be accepted. Some of our cultural practices and ideas violate God's law. Our present culture's acceptance of sexual sins is a prime example of something that violates God's law that we ought not follow. 
And it's a part and parcel. You see that in the word the Jerusalem Council gives to the Gentiles that's a part of what is repeated here. You see that in verse 25. Keep yourselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from fornication. Even in the Gentile world, the Jerusalem church and Paul was saying this cultural norm is not to be followed for a Christian. If we are to be discerning, we ought to think critically of our culture and consider where we encounter temptation to follow the world rather than to follow Christ. We see a joyful welcome and a jarring problem, but finally, I want us to see a judicial solution, a solution uh, from James, who's also known as the just. What will the elders present as a solution to this cultural problem? I see the answer in the message that is implicit uh, that the leadership wished to con convey to the Jews, along with an explicit message that they want to convey to the Gentiles, one that they have already delivered. See, the elders take the approach, show, don't tell. Look at verse 23 and 24. Do, this, do therefore this that we say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. Take them and purify thyself with them. Be at charges with them that they may shave their heads. And all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou also walkest orderly and keepest the law. Consider what, why they choose this way rather than issuing a statement. Uh, that might have been what uh, we would have thought would be the most effective way, but they realized that trying to get the Tr Jerusalem church together, trying to get them to, to replicate what they have already experienced in their meeting that day would be a logistical nightmare. They don't have a deliberative assembly of the whole. Imagine thousands of people gathering together to hear Paul's explanation and defense. Would they even wait to hear from Paul's entourage and the witnesses he could bring up or give credence to all their statements? More likely, they would not even show up or give Paul a hearing. What they cannot avoid, though, is the evidence of their own eyes and the rumors that will likely follow. Rumor brought this lie to them, and so they intend rumor. You know, we saw Paul. He was in the temple. He was doing these Nazarite vows. He was a sponsor for these guys. He must not be the guy we thought he was. His party is going to show, not tell, to put the lie to the message that has been uh, spreading. The method of this presentation comes in the form of these four men who are under a Nazarite vow. We know it's a Nazarite vow because it involves shaving their heads. We are not to told uh, what this vow was about or what it concerned, uh, he, they, but there's nothing in this passage that indicates disapproval of the, of the vow. Paul himself took vows in some form, uh, before he left Corinth at the end of the second missionary journey. You can read of this in Acts 18.18. 18. And some of you have suggested that this was a Nazarite vow. Even our Westminster Confession of Faith uh, has rules regulating vows. The elders advise Paul to become basically the sponsor of these men's vows. He is to purify himself and basically participate with them in the completion of their vow and basically fund everything that they need. This idea of his participation uh, may stem from what some think of his own Masorite vow in 1818, but others think this is a part of his sponsorship uh, required by his own ritual of purification, having recently arrived from Gentile lands. Whatever the nature of Paul's participation here, 
the effect will disprove the rumor. The, the, those who are zealous for the customs of the Jews will see that Paul follows those customs, that he supports them, that he sponsors those who are involved in them, and therefore cannot reasonably be accused of advising Jews in foreign lands to break them. And to lay Paul's fears, because the, the natural response by Paul would be like, well, if I do that, then am I... Am I convincing the Gentiles that we're going against the advice of the Jerusalem council. Well, the Jerusalem council there is saying no. Look at verse 25. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. It's an exact copy of the letter that they sent out uh, to the church, Gentile churches from Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. Only those aspects of Gentile culture that conflict with the moral law must be forsaken. The rest of the Gentiles' culture may remain in peace. That, the beginning, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing. We are not requiring the Gentiles to become Jews. We only require them to obey the moral law. Paul agrees to this. Look at verse 26. Paul took them in the next day, purifying himself with them, and entered into the temple to signify the accomplishments of the things, days of purification, until an offering should be offered for every one of them. There are a number of possible, again, reasons why Paul is being purified. We've talked about them before. He is the sponsor for these men. He enters the temple, representing that he uh, has the ability to do so, that he is he is obeying the customs of the Jews because he is a Jew. He does this by promising a sacrifice at the end of the time of their vows. Now, Paul, may, Paul only needed to be purified according to custom, for in Christ he was perfectly pure. The idea of purification presupposes defilement, not a defilement that, that comes from uh, walking in Gentile land, but a defilement that comes from sin. We are those who are born in sin and horribly defiled. And no ritual cleansing can erase the blot of sin. Instead, we need a stronger detergent. We need the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God-made man who lived a spotless life, who shed his blood on the cross for our sin. He rose again on the third day to show the completed work of redemption. And by faith, we take hold of him as, and he purifies us. Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? Do you accept the purification of Christ and so resolve to purify yourself? Will you turn from sin to holiness? Christian, notice the humility of the Apostle Paul. Did Paul have to do this? No. But he subordinates his rights to care for the church in Jerusalem. He didn't do, have to do any of this. But for the sake of the gospel, for the good of the church, out of love for his brothers and sisters, he condescends to their needs. He says to the church, you are more important than me not having to go through this ritual. And in this way, he follows his Savior. 
Often how we live speaks much louder than our words. How we, how we live demonstrates, demonstrates whether we truly believe what we profess. Part of our Christian lives require us to live pure, to reflect our inward purity that has been given to us through Christ's blood. Paul didn't just live for himself, but for others. And our pursuit for holiness is not merely for our benefit, even though we certainly derive benefit for, from obedience, but we obey also to encourage, to edify, and to unite God's people. We often look at obedience in our lives in a very isolated situation. We do what we do for us. But our obedience to Christ is also the way we encourage those around us. But ultimately, we purify ourselves out of love for the one who made and redeemed us. We purify ourselves out of gratitude for the one whose blood has cleansed us. We purify ourselves in a desire to grow closer to the one who is our all in all. Let us therefore endure all things. Let us purify our hearts, our minds, our words, our actions, and our desires that he, that Christ, may be glorified in us. Let's pray together. O Lord, you have cleansed us in the blood of Jesus. And we humbly commit ourselves to live for you and your people. Give us listening ears with hopeful hearts and minds. Give us the ability to live in harmony with your people. Help us in our pursuit of holiness that you may be all in all to us. And hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.